0: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible, I'm Mark Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
1: Last week we promised you an unbelievable conclusion to our story of Arctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, and here it is, as told by the woman who wrote the book on it, Harvard Business School professor Nancy Kane. Sit back and enjoy, and be a little amazed. We hope you've enjoyed our series featuring some of the most insightful and instructive episodes we've done here at Beyond the Crucible. We'll be back with new shows next week. Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the podcast and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have clicked play. We hope you've clicked subscribe to a podcast that deals with a subject Most of us know all too well crucible experiences. Now, crucible experiences are those things in life that are painful, traumatic, can feel like they take the wind out of our sails, can feel like they take the trajectory out of our lives, that they put us on a path that we necessarily didn't want to go on. And we talk about crucible experiences here because we believe in our experience and the experience of our guests has shown us that if we learn the lessons of our crucible experiences, and if we apply those lessons moving forward, we can not only move as the title of the show says, we can not only move beyond our crucibles, but we can move into a more rewarding life that's rooted in our vision and our values that helps other people, and that ultimately leads us on a path to significance. And today's episode is pretty special because it's the second part of a conversation that we began last week with the host of the program, Warwick Fairfax, who is the founder of Crucible Leadership, and his guest, Nancy Kane. Now, Nancy is a historian at the Harvard Business School who focuses on crisis leadership and how leaders and their teams rise to the challenges. In high stakes situations. For the purposes of this episode of Beyond the Crucible, she's also the author of a book called Forged in Crisis The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And it is one of the individuals of the five that Nancy Kane profiles in that book, the case study she unpacks in that book. One of those five people is Ernest Shackleton, and he is the subject of last week's episode and this week's episode. Ernest Shackleton was a British explorer, a polar explorer who about a hundred years ago was on a quest to discover the South Pole. The problem was another explorer, a rival explorer, discovered the South Pole first, but Shackleton had Arctic exploration in his blood. So he wasn't going to give up on still traversing that area. So he hatched a mission in 1915 to travel across Antarctica. And the plan was to leave early in the year. When others found out about Shackleton's uh, desire to to leave early in the year in 1915 to travel across Antarctica, they told him, "Mm, maybe you don't want to do that. The pack ice, the ice flows are looking pretty bad this time of year, and going south might not be the best idea for you or your men. Shackleton heard that advice, but he did not heed that advice. So in January of 1915, he set out with his crew to travel across Antarctica. Problems started immediately, and we talked about those problems last week On beyond the crucible. Pack ice did indeed impede the progress of the ship to the point that the ship was dead in the water, and not just for days, not just for weeks, not just for a couple of months, but for several months. In fact, it wasn't until late autumn in 1915 that the situation changed in any marked way, and it didn't change for the better. The pack ice around Shackleton's ship actually destroyed the ship. The ship sank, and the men had to scramble out of the ship, climb up on the ice floes, and try to figure out what they were going to do next. Shackleton was faced at that moment, and that was where we left the conversation last week with Warwick and Nancy Kane. Shackleton was faced with, what was he going to do next? And Warwick asked Nancy Kane a question at the end of last week's episode. How did Shackleton muster up the wherewithal to move on. How did he forget what had come before? How did he forget the mistakes he made that led his men to the precarious position that they were in? How did he face forward as Nancy Kane said and tackle a new mission to rejigger what he was after? He could no longer even ponder traveling across Antarctica. He now had a different mission and that mission was the life of his crew, saving the life of his men and getting them home safely to England. So when we left this conversation last week, Warwick asked Nancy Kane, how did Shackleton muster up the perspective, the boldness, the courage to take a step forward and move out in this new mission? And what we're going to hear now is part two of that episode in which Nancy Kane answers Warwick's very specific question.
2: You know, it's a question for all kinds of crisis leaders that come out of the mists. You know, I mean, Andrew Cuomo in New York State. You know Abraham Lincoln, who never managed anything more than a two person law office and becomes president at the center of the Civil War and like a huge administrator you know it's it's just so here's I, I don't have a kind of scientific vector leads to vector leads to vector analysis. Here's how I answer that question and this is I'm going to use a quote from Mr. Lincoln again you know at the this is from his annual address in December of eighteen sixty two to Congress right. Our occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. And that is, to me, a microcosm of what happens in a crucible, a really searing crucible, or a real crisis. Like, you realize, holy cow, this is really terrible. i got to raise the level of my game. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I can't see how to get through the day, much less how to get through the month or the week or the year, but I got to step it up. I got to find, I got to do, I just got to find my muscles and it's in that realization I've got to do it. And the next step, it's all steps. It's not a giant, you know, it's not like your evil wings suddenly come available and you rise up into the heavens or (laughs) you're Rocky and you've drunk the raw eggs and now you beat Apollo Creed. It's not like that. It's the first step. And then it's the next step. And then your confidence builds and people's confidence in you builds. And so you rise to the occasion. And I think that's what happened. with I think he thought as soon as that ship got stuck, I got a brand new game. What are my key priorities here? My key priorities for him initially were morale of my men. Since suddenly everything stopped, the whole, where we were going is end over. What are we going to do? How do I keep them from doing what the men did on Scott's expedition under weak leadership, which is kind of collapse inward into disunity and then, the disaster that can happen from that in life or death situations. And then you deal with that. And then you're like, oh, the ship's going to collapse. It's going to get cracked. We're going to be without a ship. Then what do we do? And so this constant kind of meeting with the self to say, we're going to figure this out next. And then we're going to figure this out. And in the doing of all that, you are stoking, you are building, you are lifting, right, the 15-pound weights of those muscles, and they are getting stronger. And crisis leaders, they get better and better and better. That's what's so interesting. And you can see it iteratively if you study them like I do.
0: And what you just said is so critical. I mean, as you know, the title of the podcast is Beyond the Crucible, and Crucible Leadership is the whole website and brand. But, you know, a crucible really tests the measure of a leader. You know, the flame is turned up, and how do they respond, and the people you've all mentioned, certainly Shackleton, as we're talking about here, he rose to the occasion, he became a better leader. It was really, it's the test, you know, the good goes to the top, uh, you yep. know, just like the whole uh, molten uh, blast furnace deal. It's the same. Yeah. So, So talk about some of those key attributes that when things got most difficult, his leadership was just rose to such an amazing level. What were some of those key things that Really, we can learn so much yeah. for today.
2: Let me answer that question by telling your listeners just a tiny story. So, the ship, the men decamped from the ship, abandoned ship, with some supplies, three lifeboats, and about 120 of the photographer, Frank Hurley's negatives, including some moving film move just instantly moving film footage, mm-hmm. in September. And they're making camp on the ice. Shackleton, by the way, puts Perhaps lesson number one puts great attention into who's gonna be with whom in which tent. And then specifically he takes what he calls his doubting Thomases, his mm-hmm. the folks that are negative, that you know are like, Well, I'm not sure how we can do this. But he puts the spreaders of potential psychological and you know collective contagion in his tent, adding new luster or power to the keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's really important mm-hmm. how you Manage and deal with people. But the ship goes down, the men are on the camps with lots of routine. He's got a routine. He, the duty roster varies every single week. Everyone sticks to a routine, everyone exercises, everyone socializes over dinner by moving around to tent after dinner, moving around to tents because we don't want people getting too alone and too negative and too isolated. All these different aspects of managing morale. But then in November, mid November, the ship goes down and he sees it in the morning starting to crack and the ice starting to open. Mm-hmm. And in the course of about eight hours, the course of a working day, the, the ship falls with its broken mast and all its like ropes everywhere through the ice, and then the ice closes over, and it's gone. And there's literally no line on the horizon now for a team of naval men, scientists, soldiers, enlisted men, officers. This is like the world coming to an end. Right. They're two thousand miles from anybody. They have no ways or GP or, or like text messages. There's no Facebook post. No one's gonna <laughs> knows where they are. I mean, the men are just, they're shell-shocked. They're in the worst state they've been. They kind of stagger their tents. Shackleton paces the ice because he can sense how, like, this is just a game-changing moment for his team and whether he can keep them unified and following orders and trying, believing they can get home. And he paces the ice, and later in his diary he will say, all night long. And he'll say, you know, a man must shape himself to a new mark the minute the old mark goes aground. So what's he saying? He's saying, I got to raise the level again. I get, there's a new mark. We don't have the ship anymore. All our bearings are lost. I've got to do something different next morning. This is really important. This is, if you will, lesson number two, he walks around the tent with Frank Worsley, the navigator, and they have cups of hot tea and milk for the men. And he says, lads, get your tea, come on here, gather around. And he does a little town hall meeting. And the first thing he says is, Ship and stores gone. Now we'll go home. Hmm. And in later years, when the men were interviewed, some of them were interviewed by the BBC about, you know, how did they survive? Mm-hmm. By the way, to almost a man, they said the boss, which was a nickname for Shackleton, made us believe we could do it. Many of them were called that. Like, you know, the whole world had just dropped away. We were like, we were in a new, incredibly low point. And there he is saying, Well, space forward. Shipping store is gone, so we're going home. And that kind of ability, first, second lesson, for the leader to show up, no matter what he was feeling inside, we know he's pacing, he was anxious, he was uncertain, he didn't know how he was gonna shape himself to a new mark, to show up and for his men, confident, strong, looking out after their welfare, right? Facing forward, that is incredibly important because in a crucible, everything is magnified, magnified impact. Everything is heightened. So the, how the leader, how you show up for yourself actually affects, you know, your ability to access your resilience muscles. So I think that was really important. He showed up every day, no matter whether he slept or not, with his courage muscles, you know, tight and the men believing that he knew what to do next. That was really important. A third thing that he did that I think was very, very important was to manage the energy of his men. Hmm. We never talk about that, but, you know, energy is really important to morale and morale is really important to action and unity. And so, for example, he knew how to, you know, when men seem to be flagging after dinner, he knew he'd he'd like to say, let's have a dancing contest on the ice or let's play the banjo. He insisted when they left the ship that they keep this banjo from one of the enlisted men because it was Hmm. mental medicine. Hmm. And he would like, you know, try and get the men involved in something that was a kind of recovery, social recovery exercise or to use an even more pointed example on a boat journey that he and five other men will make in 1916 to get help he would see a man flagging his energy flagging his spirit starts to fall and he'd order up hot milk for everyone and you know what he was doing was just like a mother kind of you know soothing a child by giving them something to drink or soothing a partner but he would never single out the man, because he didn't want that person to be embarrassed. So he just had this depth understanding of energy and its relation to how we feel and how confident we are. And he used that over and over and over again to literally manage the energy and take care of his flock. So that's something else that's very, very important about his leadership.
0: I mean, he's learning all this at a time where, I mean, I can't imagine there were many books about you know, leadership empathy, you know, in the early 1900s, it would have been much more mechanistic than, you know, obviously the science of leadership has gone on a lot since then. But he just seemed to learn about, as you said, the importance of starting with the internal, managing himself, just, you know, I mean, just saying to the men, you know, we'll get you home. I mean, the chances of them getting home and you know when they were locked in the ice, and you know 1915 was like a billion to one. I mean, it would be like almost zero. No right. communication. Yes. Yeah. No. Right. But yet somehow he led them to believe in the virtually impossible, which is remarkable
2: to me. So, two comments on that. I think important insight work. First, many years ago, I stumbled on this definition of real leadership that I love. To the beginning of the book, and I can claim no credit for it other than stumbling on it. It's from an American writer named David Foster Wallace, who wrote this in a Rolling Stone article many years ago, and he was following John McCain around on the campaign bus when McCain was running in 2000, making his first run for the presidency. And he said, "This is what, Wallace, this is what David Foster Wallace wrote: Real leaders are individuals." who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses, selfishness, laziness, and fears, and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. I think this is just such a great definition. And it's with me always. And it describes Shackleton very well. So what he was able to do is he kept raising the level of his game without textbooks, without Harvard Business School seminars, right? Without in the like, you know, kind of a chivalric code of the you know British Navy for God's sakes. You know, empathy was not a word we were teaching people, you know, <laughs> in, you know we put stripes on their you know, navy blue coats. Right. But the fact that he could do these things and keep raising his level of the game, including all lots of improvisation, right? Lots of powerful signaling, because he knew that men take signals from what he did, not just words, not just actions, was he was in a sense you know, helping the men do harder, better things than they could get themselves to do. And so when, you know, the BBC says, how did you do it in the 1930s, when they come back and interview all these survivors, they say the boss made us believe we could do it. It's a perfect illustration of the impact a leader can have by, as Bono, the rock singer once said, making the impossible possible. And that is the most, you know, kind of nurturing or empowering aspect of my research I have discovered all kinds of people, including Churchill. Let's not forget, late May 1940, who Indeed. make who make the impossible possible by learning how, in a crucible, to raise the level of their game and help others do the same thing. Absolutely, so absolutely, that it's, it's, is the potency of great
0: leadership in crucibles. And that is such a great connection you make there, Nancy, into the May June 1940. France has fallen. You know, most of Europe has gone. America's, you know, year plus away from entering, yep. and you know the the betting money would be on uh, Britain's not going to be able to hold off against the might of the German Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe, and somehow he makes the whole nation believe we're going to hang on, which Ouch. that's. I mean, how do you do that? It's millions of people believe, you know what? If Winston says we can survive, well, you know what? We can survive. That's
2: And, and you know, millions, of people, millions of people and all those like RAF base commanders, right? right? Who are like, okay, right. we're sending them all up now. I remember there's a story from the summer of 1940 when Churchill goes to visit some base and says, and how many Spitfires do we have in reserve? And he says, none. They're all up in the Right. But, right? But the point is that you don't need to do it with – Enormous amounts of reserve and slack, you just need to do it, and he did, and he made people believe they could do it. It was so important. the whole world history hinged on those those months in some very real sense.
0: oh absolutely, so I want to get to you know how Shacklin was able to get his folks off the ice, but you know, you mentioned just, the, as you said, the power of just giving his men belief, just managing emotions, mixing people up, troublemakers, even people of different classes, officers, crew, the whole games, animal, vegetable, mid- mm-hmm. uh, mineral, kind of, all <laughs> you know, managing people with food and drink. I think you Maybe. mentioned just so many tools that he managed to keep morale up. And so they were on the ice for a very long period of time. then eventually there's a turning point when you know he he launches his folks to um get to uh elephant island so talk about you know they're on this ice flow floating hundreds of miles off course he's looking for an opening the ice where he can launch these lifeboats and so talk about that part of the story where eventually they're able to launch their three lifeboats
2: Uh, so the boat just to pick up the last skeins of the story so the endurance goes down in the ice is gone forever in november of 1915 the men then pass december january february and almost all of march in that same berg seal and penguin meat start to dry up so the morale is very low it's late march they're waiting all the men are watching shackleton most keenly for the ice to break up enough for them to launch three 20 roughly 22 foot each lifeboats open lifeboats and sail northwest. They have some rough idea from what's called a sextant, what today we regard as a crude navigational device that charts the angle between the the sun and the Earth's line horizon to make navigational coordinate estimates. They're waiting for the, the ice to break up so they can sail northwest. This is up the western side of what is an archipelago of islands on the South American side of Antarctica. And they're hoping to get far enough north to an island where a trading ship some kind of ship will find them or where they can find an island called Paulette Island where Shackleton knows previous expeditions have cached supplies. So that's the goal. And they set off. And then finally the ice breaks up enough. Shackleton doesn't want them to go too early because they don't want to get stuck in ice in those lifeboats. So they're really, then they've lost their navigational, their their transport capacity. Eventually the ice breaks up enough. Shackleton gives the go ahead. And with water that they've melted from ice in barrels and supplies, they leave their camp and they have some supplies and they head northwest. It's an incredibly horrible journey that lasts five nights and six days. And in the end, the the first three days, they just basically go around in a circle. And then eventually, eventually, as they get close, Shackleton fears the men are dehydrated. Some of them have probably the early stages of dysentery from contaminated water. Their eyes are glazing over. He's worried he's going to lose them. It's terribly cold. And Shackleton decides to sail quickly to an island much farther south than he hoped to reach, an island where no one will find them. Basically, it's a big rock in the South Atlantic called Elephant Island. And that's where they end up in early April 1916. It's the men's first moment on dry land Mm -hmm. since December 1914. There's fresh water. They're extinct static to be on dry land they stagger up drink immediately set up camp and then Shackleton starts trying to rehabilitate them physically but he knows here we go lesson number four you never you don't get a straight like gps map to get out of a crisis or a crucible you navigate point to point with lots Mm -hmm. of uncertainty and lots of pivots shackleton's like no one's going to find us here i need the next step and he immediately probably by the next morning, possibly even the evening may arrive, decides we're gonna have to sail for help. Everyone can't stay here because we won't ever be found and we could die. So he starts making plans right away to say, take one of the lifeboats, reinforce it, put a canvas mast on the top of it. It's an open lifeboat, rowboat basically, put a mast up, canvas deck, excuse me, mast up, sail put 2,000 pounds of rocks in the bottom to give it some kind of heft, right? Some ability to withstand the waves of the South Atlantic. And he decides he and five carefully chosen men will sail back to South Georgia Island in the whaling station where they know they'll find civilization. And that's the next two and a half weeks of time and attention, the men all getting ready to outfit one of the lifeboats that James Cairn, it was called, to make this incredible journey across what, Anyone that sails will tell you are some of the world's most difficult
0: seas. I think you mentioned that's like an 800 mile journey. It's an so, You know, gale force, winds, 100%. and I think you're right, there was some massive wave that was bigger than any wave that Shacklin had seen, and he had had some experience on the seas. And somehow they made that 800 mile trip, yeah. which in itself, as you write, is almost unprecedented. It certainly was remarkable, even sure.
2: It, it, it's still considered the greatest open boat journey in the history of navigation. Hmm. That's a long long history, my friends several years ago an explorer and a environmentalist named Kim Jarvis reconstructed the journey with a carefully reconstructed boat same supplies Now they had a big diesel-powered steamship following them for safety and things and they barely made it right. Hmm. So no one's really done it as Shackleton did, even Jarvis, and he's an extraordinary seaman and explorer. And they get, this is April 20th, 1916, they get to South Georgia. The rudder is damaged. The boat has been banged around in a hurricane a few nights before they arrive at South Georgia so bad, hurricane so bad that it actually sinks a 500-person passenger boat that's about 300 miles away. They don't know that. And so they have to tuck in. They have to dock or come into the island on the opposite side of the Island from the whaling station, which is where help is the rest of the islands all uninhabited and completely unchartered. And so the next part of this incredible story that just keeps getting harder is Shackleton and the two really tough, smart, good guys he's brought along. The other three men that he brought along were men that he didn't want to leave on the Island because they were doubting Thomas's and he didn't want them spreading pessimism and negativity on the Island. Elephant Island while he left to try and get help. Again, managing morale. So the next part of the story is Shackleton and his two men, companions Tom Crean and Frank Worsley, take some nails out of the boat, make some you know impromptu crampons by nailing those nails into the back of the bottom of their boots, set out with some rope and a kind of kerosene lamp and a small fire, kerosene fire, and they set out over this, and it's just this incredible 36-hour journey across this mountainous mountainous island where they're almost dead a couple of times, including just, I'll give you one example of improvisation, another important aspect of crucible, leading ourselves in crucibles and leading others is they get too high and nightfall's coming and Shackleton's worried they're going to die at so high an altitude and they can't get down fast enough. So Shackleton says, let's just sled down. And they coil up this big rope flat, like a rug made of rags, And they sledge down into the darkness, not knowing what they're going to find. They fall more than 2,000 feet in like 18 seconds. And they fall into a snowbank, safe, right, in a much lower altitude, much warmer. And they stand up solemnly and shake hands and carry on. (laughs) And after 36 hours of trudging, they get to the whaling station. And they knock on the door. And no one recognizes them because everyone's given Shackleton up long ago for dead the men haven't shaved or bathed in you know months and shackleton's first question is when did the war end and (laughs) the the clark there at the whaling station it's still going on the world's gone mad and so then the the next chapter of the story is shackleton's again it's so incredibly hard that even shakespeare couldn't have thought this up right or some disaster film screenwriter his next journey Next chapter is to try and get a boat that can get back through the, the waters that they just traversed to get his 20, there are 22 men still left on Elephant Island. And he spends the next, so that's May 12th when they get to the willing station, he spends the next four months. It'll be all of May, all of June, all of July and all of August trying to get a boat that can get through what has now become pack ice again mm-hmm. and actually get its way all the way. It, it takes him three or four tries. I mean he It takes he, him four tries, four different boats. Yeah. Each of the first three tries, they encounter pack ice and he's afraid they're gonna get trapped and so they turn back and to go back to port.
0: So talk about the scene, I think you're right, maybe is it August nineteen sixteen Where he finally is on the steamer, the I think you write the Yelcho from the Mm -hmm. Chilean government loan, Mm -hmm. loan, and he's pulling in, and the men see him. Talk about that scene because that's, I mean, that's like months after he's left. Sure, it's it's incredible. So,
2: like, even telling it right now, I take a deep breath because it's so incredible. So he had gone gray with worry, I mean, in the interim, and he started to drink. Shackleton could put back one or two in London, but he hasn't drunk thus far in the expedition. But he starts drinking. He's so worried. He goes gray. And he has this basically a tugboat from the Chilean government that they where they have gone and gotten the boat. And they're coming back from Santiago to Elephant Island. And the men spy the boat. They're outside picking up barnacles to make soup because they don't have any penguins or seals other. And they're running all on food. And they spot a ship and all the men pour out from these overturned lifeboats that they're using as shelters. And they built kind of these little improv, these bivouacked kind of shelters. And they pour out and Shackleton's on the steamer with Worsley and Crean, these two men that accompany him all the way. And he starts counting the men. And he gets to 22 and Worsley said, it was like he lost 30 years off his face. Mm-hmm. Like his face breaks into the smile, the wrinkles disappear. And he says, oh my God, all 22, they're all alive. He jumps into a lifeboat from the tugboat, the Yelko, and he starts sailing and saying, lads, I'm here. And he starts throwing cigarettes from the boat to them as they get there. They all pile on really quickly. He doesn't even go ashore to see the setup. He's so worried about pack ice. He just gets them all on the Yelko. They sail for Chile. Huge celebration because everyone had given them all up as dead. And then they sail on to London where it's August 1916 and World War I is still raging. And a number of the men, most of the men on the expedition who have lived through this incredible, incredible survival story enlist. And last, and the last kind of piece here is tragically, or not the last piece, but the, the last piece of this expedition piece is tragically two of those men are killed in combat almost mm-hmm. right away. So it's like, to do all that and then die, you know, of machine gun fire? But that's I what happened.
0: Some of them, like, weeks after they got back, it was, wasn't yeah. very long. Yeah. it was, it was so incredible. The, the last chapter I find really interesting is Shackleton, <laughs> I guess, hadn't got over the uh, polar bug, even though, <laughs> you know, it's after World War One. society has fundamentally changed, yeah. the world is different, the whole polar exploration fever is gone like many things yeah. are gone. The world is yeah. totally different, but not for Shackleton and so somewhere in 1920-21 he decides, okay let's let's do it again and I think you're right, was it like eight of his crew? I mean, let's do it again it's like, who are these people? <laughs> sure. Why would you want to do this again? What kind of leader can inspire people to do something I don't know, i say suicidal again. It's like
2: a great crucible leader. So he sends the call out in 1920 it's to go again, right? And it goes out to four corners. All his men have scattered. The war's over. He himself has been lecturing in the United States trying to recoup some of the money for the debts he owes for the expedition on the speaker circuit in America. But the world, I mean, no one cares about the poll anymore. No one cares, even cares about individual heroism. That just got wiped away in the mass carnage of the First World War. And so he sends a call out and then like, It's more than eight. I want to say it's 12 men answer. And like, yes, sir, boss, here we come. And they all gather and the ship takes off in late 1920. And guess what? They go just like they had in 1914. They go to South America, pick up a few more supplies. And then last port of call is again, South Georgia, the whaling station. And that night, the first night they get there, Shackleton has a massive heart attack and dies in his sleep in his cabin. And his men bury him there. And then they go on and kind of travel along the Vassal Bay, which is this bay that they wandered on the Endurance as the currents carried them, and back to Elephant Island just to take a look at, you know, their place where many of them spent, you know, five months, and then they come back. And it's more of a just a kind of reliving, I think, of the cohesion and the the triumph of the human spirit that that journey was. And then the expedition just fades into the midst of history. No one cares. They got home. The men go on to their lives. The BBC gets interested in the story and does a, a series of radio interviews in the 30s. And then they slip back in the midst of history. And no one, no one, no British school kid, no explorer aficionado is talking about Ernest Shackleton.
0: So were, I think you're right. They were talking about Scott. You know, they were the, talking about Scott the who the died on the way back. Who, who
2: exactly. The martyred, lousy, insecure leader who, you know, effectively <laughs> martyred his men. Right, and you know, you God Queen and Country, but he, or King and Country, but they still died. And mm-hmm. so, beginning in the 1980s, though it's almost like a phoenix rising, you know, partly by the efforts of Roland Huntford and other very good polar explorers, you know, a larger story starts to come out, both about Scott and Earth Shackleton, and then he is. It's again like almost like from underground, this collective, global kind of. Cottage industry or grapevine of real interest in this story and of a, the impossible being made possible just comes to be incredibly popular. There are Shackleton schools, there are Shackleton societies. I get emails every single week and have for twenty years about people like wanting to talk about Shackleton. And right now in the COVID nineteen crisis, everyone I know wants to understand how they endured and triumphed in these life and death. There, there is something about
0: the intrigue of the epic failure. Yeah. Being Australian, as you probably know, one of the the key military episodes in Australian history is Gallipoli. Yeah. For Australia, we were became a nation in 1901, but in reality, we became a nation in, uh, I think it was 1915, somewhere like that, in Gallipoli, where, just real briefly, as you know, it was on the shores of Turkey. Turkey was an ally of Germany in World War One. Uh, the British... Commanders sort of dithered and just made sure that the Turkish forces had plenty of time to get machine gun nests on the hills and it was just horrifically executed. And then these poor Australians were landed there on the shores of Gallipoli with these high hills and mountains, machine gun nests, no hope of success. But yet, even though it was a failure, just the the heroism and the courage amidst that has defined a nation even now, you know, Australian cricket teams when they go to England will stop on the way as a kind of a morale boost. So anyway, Gallipoli is a whole other thing. But there's something about the epic failure. But in this case, it's more than just the epic failure. It's just what Shackleton learned, his ability to move on. So as we sort of summarize here, for leaders today who may never have heard of Shackleton. You know, what are the two or three things of why Shackleton holds so many lessons for CEOs, leaders of nonprofits, leaders in the COVID-19 crisis that we're all going through, corporate leaders, governmental leaders, when everything is so uncertain? What are the key nuggets, would you say, that we need to learn about Shackleton?
2: Well, just to kind of present them in uncharacteristically succinct form, you have to... (laughs) You have to step into the fear, right? You take the step. Courage is not the absence of fear. As Mandela said, it's the willingness to walk into the fear. Kind of square your shoulders and tighten your core and realize you are still standing and can take the next step. People behind you can take the first step. So step into the fear. Feed and water yourself and your people carefully, both emotionally and physically and mentally. Keep your fingers tightly on the pulse, the morale of the people around you. Face forward and learn. Right. Let go of what was and what didn't work in the past. Learn from it and then, then move forward, especially in crucibles and crises. There's just too much at stake to spend a lot of time rehashing the past. You know, I said on the Charlie Rose interview I did many, several years ago when my book came in, I said, you know, I learned and Shackleton learned that why is never the question. Why me? Why this? How, why the suffering? Why the calamity? Why the failures? It's never why. It's what can I make in this wreckage? And how can I redeem, reclaim? And just as a crucible, it's about, you know, high flames, literally, and its ability to kind of reshape things. How can I, you know, be forged into something better and stronger and more committed to service? Another lesson that's really important in Shackleton that we haven't talked about that I see over and over in these leaders who make the these ordinary people who do extraordinary things, right, or these people that make the impossible possible is they ultimately, in the doing, in this forging, in the crucible, cross the bridge from the narcissistic, I need to do this, this is my bullet list, this is my agenda, this is my career. They cross the bridge to a more powerful place called thou or we. So you discover, these people each discover, Lincoln discovers it, you know, all that narcissistic quest for public office and power becomes, i got to save the union. We have to save our country, right? And it's the crossing of that bridge from I to thou or I to we, when you discover that who your most powerful, most luminous, most noble self is, is actually in service to others and that that's the best way to serve yourself that you find your ruby slippers, right? The secret weapon, your superpower that you've never known you'd had. So Shackleton discovers that and keeps growing in that commitment to the mission with God as my witness, I'll bring them all home alive. And then, you know, last but not least, this ability to keep improvising and pivoting, right? Improvising with, you know, okay, well, we're going to, sail for south georgia now you know improvising for oops well we'll sledge down the mountain so we don't freeze up here improvising but always in service to this worthy mission i will bring home alive with come hell or high water i will do it and that of course the constant engagement with the mission right helps shore up your endurance muscles and your ability to say as shackleton once said i just love this obstacles are just things to overcome after all (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, that's a really pa- empowered statement. So all those things are really critical to individuals in a crucible who will ultimately use that experience to lead other individuals
0: in a crucible. Just to summarize here, because I know I need to uh, probably bring it to conclusion. But, yeah, I mean, to me, a crucible really tests the mettle of a leader with these five people. They became better people. They became maybe there were the um, raw materials there. Who knows? Yep. Somehow it forged them into something that they weren't before that. the And yeah. as you say very well, the ability to move forward and not brood on the past, the ability to realize it's not about me, it's about other people. It's about, as we say in the Christmas leadership, a life, the significance of significance, a life on purpose, focused on others. All these great leaders did that. And the reason it's so important for us to study them and why your work is so important is there is a reason we call them great leaders because great leaders don't happen every day. You know, they're very rare. It's like finding diamonds. You could look through a lot of rock to find a diamond. And so that's why Mm -hmm. studying them and what you do, the work is so important because, you know, who else are we gonna learn from? There are very few people that we hold up as role models or to learn from, unfortunately.
2: So, well, but maybe it's not quite such a small kind of circle of people or small group of people work. I've come, and I'm still studying courageously as I'm writing a case, a research associate and I are writing a case right now about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the emotional intelligence and awareness of not just John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, but a few other people, including people like Adelaide Stevenson and Tommy Thompson, who was the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, who was called in. And the emotional intelligence piece that is as important as any of the military expertise in that conference room or the white house in helping resolve this without nuclear war becoming the logical end of our action. So I, the more I've studied this, this phenomenon of, of great leaders, I, I the more I'm convinced that great leaders are, are made, they're not born. And if that's the case, then there's lots and lots of potential greatness out there. And I think it also comes in many different shapes and sizes. We cover, in our lives, people who end up exerting, you know, a lot of power, a lot of authority, a lot of influence. But, you know, I, I went through chemotherapy. I saw great leaders on the infusion floor in those nurses, right? I've seen school principals who are great leaders. There's a woman right now in Ohio, who's the health secretary who's facing death threats because she knows a lot about, you know, social distancing and, and healthy protocols. And people are certain smaller group, very small group. People's very angry and armed. And, you know, she's a great leader and she's getting greater by the day as she holds this idea about your health, the collective health of Ohioans is my charge. And I will, you know, I'm obligated by that. I will discharge that obligation. So I think that one really important message for people in crucibles and or helping someone in crucible is out of this can come your greatness. But you have to work at and you have to say my project here isn't just to get through this. It's to get better and stronger, and fuller, and more empathic, and more compassionate, and more competent. And I'm gonna work on that as I navigate through these high winds and big waves. That's really important, but you have to decide that for yourself, and then you have to stick to it. So that piece is a covenant that you make with yourself, and it's really powerful, but it takes work, real work, but incredibly rewarding work as well.
1: Well said. Uh, Normally, at the end of a podcast, I will launch into what I consider the three takeaways, But I've been in the communications business long enough to know that when there's this much Harvard Business School in the house and it's been summarized so well, I'm not going to bother doing that because I think Nancy has summarized it all very well. listener. I will say two more things. The second one, Nancy, I'm going to give you the chance to let people know where they can get your book. But the first thing I want to do to kind of draw the balloon strings together of everything Mm -hmm. that we've talked about here. Is to say something that Nancy says in her book, Listener, and something that we say on uh, Beyond the Crucible all the time. Because I think one of the joys of co-hosting this podcast is seeing people from different backgrounds, different Crucible experiences, land at the same place without ever having communicated. So here's what Nancy writes in her book. She says, it takes reserves of emotional awareness and discipline for leaders to balance attention to the path ahead with knowledge gleaned from the past. Hmm. Here's what we say at Crucible Leadership. Learning the lessons of your crucible to chart a course to a life of significance is critical. Two ways of saying sort of the same thing. Balance what came before with what lies ahead and focus on a life of significance. Nancy, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't let the listeners know how they can learn more about you and get this
2: fantastic book for themselves. Well, let me answer the, the second thing first. The book is fantastic, not because I wrote it. It's because these people live such brave lives and they're loving lives as well. These are not just superheroes with cloaks and leaping tall buildings. These are ordinary people who lived magnificent lives and they're inspirational just to, it was an inspiration to me just to have the privilege to write about them. So it's available almost anywhere books are sold. I read the audio. If you like books, you like audio books and you like the audience to be the voice I choke up a little bit at the end about Rachel Carson. So that's just a little tease. And then I have done an extraordinary amount of media videos. I have a very active social media life, which I conduct purely around lessons of leadership. So there's no pictures of my horse or my dogs (laughs) or my outfit problems or eating chips. There's no vitriol or or exuberance. There is lessons every day. Right now I'm running a classroom called that you can find on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Every day, a new lesson. Leading Yourself in Crisis. Insight number—we're up to sixty-four, and with resources there. And then my website, which is just launched in a new form, is called nancycane.com and it has videos, articles, podcasts, radio interviews. I do a regular spot on NPR. And we have links to all of those on all kinds of leadership topics. So there's just a plethora of material. For the interested listener. And for folks who are
1: listening, and as I often say about Warwick, since he has a silent W in the middle of his name, Nancy Kane, so you know, is spelled, listener, K-O-E-H-N.
2: Thank you for that.
1: And those social media accounts that Nancy talked about, as well as her website, it's NancyKane.com. Nancy, K-O-E-H-N.com. So thank you, listener, for spending time with us here at Beyond the Crucible. Warwick and I have a couple of favors to ask you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here in this incredible story about Ernest Shackleton, one would be to click subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this to right now. That does a couple of things for us. One, for you, it helps make sure that you don't miss any episode of the show so that you can continue to get these interviews and these discussions of the key elements of crucible leadership. And then second, we would ask, uh, visit crucibleleadership.com, where you can find blogs that Warwick's written. You can take an assessment to see where you fall on your own journey to a life of significance. And hopefully that will add even more fuel to your fire to reach that life of significance. So until the next time we're together, thank you for spending time with us. And remember that crucible experiences, as we just saw in this interview with Nancy Kane, can be extraordinarily painful. They can be very difficult. They can be hard to move beyond. But if you stay after it, if you continue to, as Nancy said, put one foot in front of the other and continue to take one step at a time, it's not the end of your story by any stretch of the imagination. It is, in fact, the beginning of a new story that can be the most rewarding story of your life because it is one that leads to a life of significance.